Hello and welcome to the Cross-Eyed Podcast, the podcast all about the North Iowa Area Community College Introduction to Psychology class. My name is Jareth Cross, and I will be your host through this ride of summarizing a wonderful semester of class. Today we have quite a few subjects to get through. We have a little bit on classical conditioning, a little bit more on operant conditioning, some facts about validity and reliability, as well as biases and how they affect us. We also have a few experiments that have been conducted in the psychology field and how they were conducted as well as how they affected the world of psychology. We also have fields of study that's going to be going over just a few of the different kinds of psychology that people specialize in and what they do. And to round things out, we'll uh, go over just a little bit of my experience in this class. So to start us off, we're going to get into classical conditioning. So the idea behind a classical conditioning is that a conditioned stimulus is paired with an unconditioned stimulus in order to get the same effect with the unconditioned stimulus as you would get with the conditioned one. In more simple terms, that means that if your body reacts to something in a certain way when you are around this conditioned stimulus, then when you pair it with the unconditioned stimulus, eventually you will get the same effect from the unconditioned stimulus as the conditioned stimulus. A good example of this is Pavlov's dog, where they taught a dog to salivate when hearing the sound of a bell because they would give him food every time that he heard the bell. So eventually, the dog began to associate the sound of a bell to the sound of of food. Therefore, he would get ready to eat every time that he would hear a bell. So now would be a good time to bring up the idea of discrimination, because not every bell would work with that dog. It has to be a more specific sound in order for this kind of conditioning to work. Just because you teach a dog to think about food every time that you hear the bell doesn't mean that every time any bell rings, it's going to start getting hungry. It just means that when you ring that specific bell, it's going to get hungry. Now, eventually, after enough time with the dog or with enough time with a person, the conditions stimulus is going to give the same effect as the unconditioned stimulus. And if you continue to work with it and your intention is to get rid of the conditioned stimulus, eventually you can start removing it as you use the unconditioned stimulus and you can cause the conditioned stimulus to go through extinction, which means that it is being replaced by the unconditioned stimulus and the behavior will slowly end. This is where its usefulness in therapy can come in. Things like exposure therapy can use classical conditioning to pair positive stimulus with a negative conditioned stimulus to help end a negative response to something. So let's say a kid is afraid of dogs. A therapist can use the concepts of classical conditioning to bring in different dogs or maybe even the same dog and have the kid try and relate with the dog or interact with the dog and every time the kid can 
stay in the room with the dog, the kid gets a treat or something sweet, something positive for being there with him. And eventually it starts to get more specific because he was able to stay and pet the dog. He gets the treat. He gets the candy. And slowly the kid is building a positive reaction, positive memories with the negative stimulus, which can help slowly end their fear of the dog and maybe even build something more loving towards it. Another way that therapists can use classical conditioning is through aversion therapy. Let's say that you want to stop biting your nails. Maybe the therapist is going to suggest that you put nail polish on your fingers. So every time that you bite your nails, you're going to get a really bitter taste in your mouth, giving you incentive to stop biting your nails. This is using classical conditioning to pay an undesired trait with a negative stimulus in hopes that it'll end it. But there are many ways that you can include classical conditioning in the ability to teach new skills and to get rid of undesired ones. Another kind of conditioning is called operant conditioning. It's also known as instrumental conditioning, and it uses rewards and punishment in order to teach a new ability or maybe to stop something as well. You're going to hear words like neural operant, reinforcer, and punishment here. A neural operant would be a stimulus that doesn't really affect anything. A reinforcer is going to be a response that helps increase a behavior, and a punisher is a response that's going to help decrease a behavior. Reinforcers are not always positive, and punishers are not always negative. Let's give a few examples. Let's say we want to do a positive reinforcement. Let's give a treat to a dog for coming back to you when you call their name. This is positive reinforcement because you are giving something in order for something to continue happening. Additionally, as a example of a negative reinforcer, a teacher might remove homework from a lesson plan as incentive for the class to stay engaged throughout the class period. This is going to be considered negative reinforcement because you are taking away something from the equation in order to have something happen more often. Now, in terms of punishment, you can have positive punishment, such as a teacher giving someone detention for disrespectful behavior within the classroom. You are giving the detention because you want the disrespectful behavior to cease, so that is why it is positive punishment. Lastly, we have negative punishment, and a good example of that would be taking away a toy from a kid for being aggressive with another kid. You're taking away that toy because you want them to stop being so mean, so you are going to negatively punish them. This uh, this operating conditioning is really useful in cases like patients with OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder. Obsessive compulsive disorder is an operant conditioning in its own way, considering that your brain rewards compulsive behavior with reducing the amount of anxiety that you are experiencing. Therapists are able to reverse this and put it on its head by using the compulsive conditioning against 
against it and setting targeted responses to the compulsive behavior and rewarding or punishing the actions promptly based on what would best work with the individual. Now that we've covered the two most major conditioning types, let's move on to validity and reliability. Validity can be defined as a statement's relation to truth, accuracy, and facts important to look for in just about any situation. And reliability can be defined as how much a statement has consistency. Those are both very important things to keep track of when looking for bias in your life. There is so many different kinds of bias, and I thought that I would go over those that we learned throughout the class. Let's start up top with confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is the act of recalling or looking for information that is going to benefit beliefs that you held on to prior to researching. This can severely impact your life because it can very quickly change a narrative and sway what people see. It's easy to look for the answers that you want. It is harder to accept facts the more and more that you do it. So what's important is to stop, think, and make sure that you're looking for multiple sources and making sure that you are getting the best information that you can get for the situation that is as unbiased as possible. Next is uh, is hindsight bias. Hindsight bias is a really easy trap to fall into. It's easy looking back and believing that something that happened to you in the past was a lot more predictable than it was, being like, well, now that it's happened, like, of course that's how this ended up. I could have known that. But the truth is that it's really not as predictable as you think it is. If it was really as predictable as you think it was, then why didn't you act that way in the first place? Hindsight bias really takes away your ability to learn from your mistakes. So it's important to check yourself and ensure that you aren't just brushing past those mistakes that you can fix. Next up would be the self-serving bias, which is adjusting the narrative to serve the image that you want to be seen. So what I mean by this is that if you do something commendable, then you are going to be quick to build yourself up and give yourself a little bit more credit for the act than you might deserve. Whereas if something negative happens, then you're going to very much play down the part that you played and and it's going to be less of something that you had a part in. This can really, really hurt people's feelings, or you can end up cutting somebody out of the conversation that was a really big help to you, or uh, you can possibly throw somebody under the bus when you guys had equal part in something, which is also very hurtful. So, very careful when working with the self-serving bias. Check yourself. Then, very similar is the actor-observer bias. Sometimes people find themselves feeling like things end up just happening to you. But other times, when the same thing happens to someone else, it's not by chance, and it happened to them because they made that choice. And this is a very harmful trap to run into because you slowly lose the ability to be responsible for your own actions. This sounds very similar to self-serving bias in a couple ways, but the difference is the amount that you are 
self-serving bias is going to be more about I did this project and I did it well, so it's me, or I didn't do it well and I didn't have much part in it. I was just going through the motions, whereas actor-observer bias is going to be more in events like I made someone mad and they retaliated and that was not my fault. That was their fault for getting offended. But if somebody else was in my position, I would see that they made them mad and I would blame them for making them mad. It's two different ways of looking at the same situation when it comes to actor-observer bias, and you have to be careful and make sure that you're viewing this lens not only as yourself, but as somebody looking from the outside in. Moving on, we have the anchoring bias. A lot of people are going to be quick to rely on the first piece of information that they observe just a bit too heavily when making a decision. For instance, if you see an antique that's listed at $500 and it's on sale for $50, you're going to be a lot more likely to buy that antique than, say, the same item that was listed at $50 from the very start. You're going to see a lot more value in the the sale, thinking that the antique is a lot more money than if you had seen this item at the beginning being $50. So be careful and always search around. Make sure that you are getting the best bang for your buck, but also that you're not being fooled. Following that up, we can talk a little bit about in-group bias. In-group bias happens when you have a better preference for the people in the group around you than those outside of the group. And this is something that is incredibly easy for all of us to get caught up in because none of us really tend to like strangers that much. It takes a little bit to warm up to people. Even if we like to go out and talk to people, we have that anchored group that we can always come back to and talk to. And so when they are giving an idea, it is so easy to prefer them over someone else, which can create a divide between your group and the people outside of it. And uh, you can lose opportunities that great people offer you that might be outside of the group right now. And also very similarly is the representative bias, judging a book by its cover, essentially. We're told in media from a very young age that you lose a lot of opportunity and you lose a lot of good people when you judge a book by its cover. But it's so easy. It's so easy to take a first glance at someone or something and immediately say, I don't think this is for me. So always remember that unless it's something dangerous, don't be afraid to try new things. Don't be afraid to give somebody a chance because they might surprise you. Next is the experimenter bias. Expecting a certain result during an experiment can kind of wreck your experiment's findings. It's an easy trap to fall into, and that's why a lot of people work with others to get experiments done. But yeah, if you are very stuck on the hypothesis that you want, and you are working to prove the hypothesis right, then you're kind of stunting the scientific method. The whole point of the scientific method is to try and prove your hypothesis wrong. If you can prove your hypothesis wrong, then you have to go back to the drawing board. But if you can't prove it wrong, then it has to be right at least until somebody can do what you couldn't, which is the beautiful thing about science. And learning is 
a never-ending cycle that can always be tested and redone. So it's important to not just rest on finding what you want and search for the truth. And in a last pairing towards the end here, I thought I'd match the experimenter bias with the observer bias, where uh, your perception going into an event can really influence how you feel about the event afterwards. If you don't think that you are going to get a good experience out of something, then you are far more likely to not enjoy the experience and search for things that are wrong with it. So it is extremely important when you are attending something or you're doing something new to keep an open mind, because if you're expecting the worst, then you're probably going to find the worst. So in experimentation, we know to always do our best to try and keep bias out of the equation. But despite all of our efforts, sometimes the bias just kind of creeps in. So the important thing to do is to keep your operational variable. Now, what is the operational variable? Well, it is specifically trying to define as best you can how you find a variable and how it's used and how it's measured in the experiment. If you can best explain how you're doing the experiment, why you're doing the experiment, and just exactly how you got your results, then when somebody else is going through and reading it, they can better understand how you got your results and hopefully how they can better build upon your experiment. So now that we've talked a little bit about biases and experiments, why don't we go over a few famous experiments that have been done in the past with psychology? Let's start with the Milgram experiment from 1961. This took place at Yale University and was headed by Stanford Milgram, i.e. why it's called the Milgram experiment. The gist of this was that there would be an examiner, a teacher, and a student. The examiner would be a authority figure for the teacher, supervising the teacher, giving him instructions, and the teacher would be giving the student a series of questions, and if the student got the question wrong, they would be given a controlled shock, and the examiner would slowly ask the teacher to slowly add to the voltage of the shocks until the end. Now, the student was actually played by an actor and was not getting shocked. They simply needed to pretend that they were being shocked, and the more voltage that they would get added to, the more more panicked and distraught they had to act to try and see if they could make the subject playing the teacher to stop the experiment. Just to keep in mind, the teacher was actually the subject of the experiment. Stanford Milgram wanted to see if being in a position where an authority figure was telling you to do something, if you would obey the authority figure. And so the examiner would ask the teacher to increase the voltage until the actor had received three controlled shocks at max voltage, or if the teacher refused to do so and the experiment would end. The hypothesis was that some people would obey authority even if it was the wrong thing to do. 
So the dependent variables would be the examiner, the actor, and the act of increasing the voltage, whereas the independent variable would be the teacher. And what they found in these studies is that the 65% of subjects that completed the study ended up shocking the student until they were asked to go silent after the max voltage. The conclusion ended up supporting the hypothesis that most people in the situation of needing to obey authority would end up doing so regardless of what they were being asked to do. Another good example of a psychology experiment comes right here from Iowa. It was the Tudor experiment, also known as the Monster Experiment. This took place in 1939 and was headed by Wendell Johnson and Mary Tudor at the University of Iowa. They wanted to see the effect of positive and negative reinforcement on speech disorder, so they took 22 children from an orphanage, 10 of which with early signs of speech impediment, and told them that they would receive speech therapy. They then split these kids into two groups of 11, each with five kids that were struggling with their speech. One group was told that they had no uh, stutter, and they were given positive reinforcement and advised to ignore anyone who would tell them that they did have a speech impediment. The other group, however, was told that they did have a problem with their speech, and that if they chose to speak, they should say it correctly or choose to stay silent instead. Despite how awful this sounds, it was a test that was taken, and they wanted to see if making a child worry about stuttering would make them develop a stutter. The dependent variables of this experiment were the number of children used, the number of children that were struggling with speech, and they kept them all in the same environment. They came from the same orphanage and returned to the same orphanage, and the independent variable would have been the message that they were given and the treatment that they were given. The study found at the end that though the reinforcement had very little effect on how bad the stutter of a child was, no child developed any noticeable stutter. However, the positive reinforcement group developed incredibly high self-esteem and were rather successful, whereas the negative reinforcement group had their self-esteem drastically drop. They retreated within themselves and became very, very self-conscious about their words and became very silent. These children were never told that this was a test or that they didn't have speech impediments, so there was never any treatment to bring them back to where they, where they started, which on the positive group is a good thing. However, in the negative reinforcement side, it drastically affected the livelihood of these children. And for cases like this, in the 1970s, the psychological community came up with the Belmont Report, which tries to help regulate and supervise human psychological experiments so they don't have bad experiments that harm people like this anymore. It has some main rules, like respect for persons, which means that everyone that is a part of the group has to give a form of informed consent. They have to know at least a little bit about what's going on and be okay with it. 
the researchers have to be beneficent, which means that they have to try not to negatively affect their participants. There has to be justice. You can't exploit your subjects, and you have to ensure that the burdens and the benefits of your study are distributed fairly amongst the subjects that you gather. So moving on, we've talked a lot about psychology, but we haven't gotten into what kinds of psychology there are. There are plenty of different fields of psychology, so we're going to go into just a few of the more, the more mainstream ones, starting with cognitive psychology. Cognitive psychology is the study of how people think. It is extremely focused on the interaction of people, emotion, creativity, and problem-solving. It's a lot about figuring out how the brain is reacting to things and how exactly it's going to change depending on what is in the world around them. Some famous psychologists in this field would be Jean Piaget and Robert Sternberg. Next would be behavioral psychology. Behavioral psychology is the study of how thoughts and emotions tend to influence our actions and behaviors. So it's not always clear-cut as to how our brain and our thoughts fully influence how we behave. So it was up to these psychologists to kind of dig a little deeper into the, the mind of others and try and find a reason as to why certain things happened to people and why people thought in a certain way. This includes people like Ivan Pavlov from the Pavlov's dog experiment, John B. Watson, and Sigmund Freud, of course. So moving on, there is humanistic psychology, which emphasizes the whole person and studying and studying a person's life. It has a very big importance surrounding free will, self-efficacy, and self-actualization, and it wants to build on bringing people to their fullest potential and bring them to the best well-being that they can get to. So this is going to include psychologists like Abraham Maslow and Carl Rogers. Abraham Maslow, of course, being the one who made the hierarchy of human needs a process where Maslow explored exactly where people may find needs and what takes precedence. So at the bottom, you're going to find find physiological needs like the need for air, water, food, shelter, and stuff like that, the things that you need to survive. Above that, once you have that box checked, he believed that you would move on to the need of safety, finding security, finding employment, finding the right things to keep you healthy. And after you have secured your safety, you would move on to love and belonging, finding friends, finding finding more connection within your family, finding somebody to start a relationship with, maybe start a family with. And after finding that, you could be able to work on your esteem, find Finding ways to get respect for yourself, work on your self-esteem, work on your status, work on what makes you feel strong. And after that, if you found the other four steps, then you would work on self-actualization, which would be finding the best way to make yourself as good as you possibly can be. And lastly, we'll move on to biological and physiological psychology. 
this field of psychology is far more focused on how your body and your brain chemistry, how your body, as well as illness, mental illness, and injury affects your behavior. So when you get hurt, when you feel down, when you are depressed, when you have anxiety, why does that change your behavior? What is that doing to affect you on the outside, and what can we do to make it better? It is a field that's primarily focused on medication to assist therapy and rehabilitation. Psychiatrists are very heavily within the biological, physiological psychology, and famous psychologists in this field would be people like Wilhelm Wund and Eric Erickson. So having that all said, how is this class, how is this class going to affect me and how am I going to utilize this in my life after this? Well, firstly, I'm going to use this class and I am using this class to better understand myself. After being able to understand the mind better, I can use this information to make myself better and to find explanations, find answers for the problems that I may find in myself. And it gives me a better avenue to work on myself. It gives me a better perspective to find new ways to get help. It also helps me better understand those around me. It helps me have a better understanding and a better sympathy for those around me and and for finding out why exactly they might do things that I don't immediately understand or do myself. And lastly, I am using this class to better understand psychology. Even though psychology and therapy is getting a better name for itself in recent years, the stigma of its past with the monster experiment and the Milgram experiment, as well as people just not believing in the field itself, are keeping psychology from reaching its full potential. And so being able to better understand psychology and the benefits that it can provide me and others can hopefully bring psychology as a field into more prominence than it already is as we work towards mental health becoming just as important as physical health. It's important to keep your mind healthy just like you keep your body healthy. So eventually, the hope is that spreading the word about what psychology can do and what psychology is can change the minds of those around us and bolster the opinions of others so we can make psychology a more accessible and a more open area of study that can assist all of us in time. That is all for me today. I want to thank everyone for listening, and I hope to see you in the future. Thank you so much for a great year, and goodbye.